You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Exodus chapter 20. If you were with us last week, uh, we were looking at the scene of the children of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. And we were looking at the ways that Israel had to approach a holy God. Um, We said that when comparing the Old Testament and the New Testament, the holiness of God has not changed, but the way we interact with a holy God has because of the satisfying, justifying work of Jesus Christ. And so we said that we still serve the same holy God, but it looks different not because God has changed, but we really spent a lot of time looking last week at how the mediator has changed, right? We said that Moses was a functioning mediator for the children of Israel in that he stands between a holy God and sinful Israel, right? And so as God gives the instructions in in Exodus 19 about how his people are going to approach him, there's all these rules and regulations that Certain, certain people in Israel can come closer, but for the most part, the, the population has to stay uh, at a distance, that they're not allowed to approach a holy God, that um, they're to wash their clothing and make preparations leading up to this time of worshiping Yahweh. Uh, the, the husband-wife intimacy is supposed to stop for a period of time in anticipation of being with Yahweh and we said a good, a good reason for that probably was God wanted to help the children of Israel see that that relationship between husband and wife was not going to play a part in their worship because it was a common practice in the pagan cultures around them for that to be a part of the worship. And so he says, look, you're going to be set apart. You're going to be different. Our worship's going to look different. And so we spent a lot of time last week looking at how Israel approached God, but then we, we, sh- we shifted gears and saw how we approach God differently because the mediator has changed, right? That because Jesus is a far superior mediator than Moses, we can actually draw near to a holy God, right? We can be welcomed into his presence. We don't have to have rules and regulations about approaching him. The, the curtain in the, the tabernacle, the curtain in the temple has been torn, giving us access to him. And so, challenged you last week um, as we closed with Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 through 29. And in that passage, there's a comparison between the God of Mount Sinai and the God of Mount uh, Zion. And the idea being that it's the same God who's speaking today. It's the same God who is coming once again today. And so there has to be preparations. We have to prepare and be ready for it. It just looks different. We're putting our faith and trust in the mediator, Jesus, so that when God sends his son, we're ready and prepared for that return. And so if you didn't get a chance to listen to last week, I don't typically promote my previous sermons, but um, I think you need to go back and listen to last week because I think it will help as we navigate through the coming weeks. Um, Looking at the Old Testament law, I think last week and today's sermons are really important to understanding the rest of the way through Exodus because in some ways we're going to be looking at things that don't necessarily apply to us in the same ways, and yet looking at things that do still apply to us based on what we see in the New Testament. So last week and this week, I think, give us a good framework for how to understand the rest of the book of Exodus. Draw your attention to chapter 20 today. We're actually just going to look at verses 1 and 2, but I do want to read through the Ten Commandments because we're going to kind of use today as a an introduction for how we should understand God's law, particularly as New Testament believers. Um, God's law is uh, on trial under criticism by a lot of people today as to whether the Old Testament remains relevant. Should it be studied and treasured by the church still, or is it outdated? Is it something that we've moved past? So we're going to kind of look at that some today. So let's look at and start reading from verse 1 in Exodus chapter 20. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. 
You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. We know these commandments. We understand these. We're going to see, hopefully, the relevancy that they have for our life today as New Testament believers. Our summary sentence for today. When comparing the Old Testament to the New Testament, the moral character of God has not changed. But the ways we carry out obedience to his moral law has because of the righteous, just say the righteous fulfillment of the law by Jesus Christ. When comparing the Old Testament to the New Testament, the moral character of God has not changed, but the ways we carry out obedience to his moral law has because of the righteous fulfillment of the law by Jesus Christ. For our kids, Jesus makes it possible for us to obey by being obedient for us. So last week we said, Old Testament to New Testament, God's holiness hasn't changed. Man's sinfulness hasn't changed. What has changed? The mediator, right? Moses in the Old Testament, Jesus in the New Testament, far superior mediator. In, in today's sermon, we're seeing that the moral character of God has not changed from Old Testament to New Testament, but how we carry out the law has, right? Like we don't, we talked about this some last week, we don't, we don't offer sacrifices anymore, right? We don't we don't live under the law in the same ways. There's, there's freedom in Christ that's, been, that's allowed us to be set free from some of that. But we're going to see that we're still very much expected to carry out the commands of God, that it's an expression of how we love him. It's an expression of how we trust him. And, and really, that was in place for the children of Israel too, right? The, the, the first two verses <clears throat> highlight God calling them to this obedience And he's still harping on the fact that it's because he's already saved them. It's because he's already delivered them. They're not earning or working towards being his people. They already are his people. And that's so important for us to remember. It's the gospel in the Old Testament that we see here that that it's, it's already been accomplished for us. Salvation's already been done for us. And so when we think about living in obedience to Christ, it's not to earn our salvation It's an expression of love and and commitment and faithfulness to the one who has already saved us, right? So comparing the Old Testament and New Testament, moral character of God hasn't changed. We still have a responsibility to carry out obedience to that. It just looks a little different in the New Testament. We live in a day of moral relativism. You guys are, are aware of that. You know that we're right, or we're what is right is what people say based on how they feel at the time. Right? We, we, we live in a day and age where uh, there's a, a, <clears throat> a movement away from absolute truth, absolute morals, to more of a you determine what's right for you and your life based on how you feel. Without set parameters for right and wrong, it's really a, a state of lawlessness that ensues from this. Um, and yet, when you look at various places in Scripture, how is, how is law and government portrayed to his people where it's portrayed in such a way where, where it's good. It's a good gift from God that he gives government, that he gives law. Why? Because it, it keeps evil at bay, right? God talks about this in, in Romans. Paul talks about this, writes about this, how, how government is good. Its laws are good. Uh, the police are good. They, they help take care of us. They help apply right and wrong situations to people who are, who are depraved. People make up rules, though, based on their preferences for what works best for them at any given moment. What we see here from our text today, though, is that the communication of God's law, he speaks it, <clears throat> right? He speaks it, and then he writes it in stone. We don't, we don't see it in our text today, but if you fast forward to the end when God is done writing or done speaking, he talks about it being written in stone, and he delivers it to Moses. It's, it's a, a communication of God's law that refutes people's claims 
that man can develop and update the moral codes. The sad part is that the church isn't exempt from this, right? Like, we know that people on the outside live this way. We know that people on the outside want to determine their own right and wrong. They don't want to yield to God's law. They don't want to yield to what we see here today, the Ten Commandments. They don't want to yield to God's morality. But unfortunately, we see that creeping into the church more and more and more where the church is trying to reinterpret God's commands, where where the church is trying to reinterpret right and wrong, trying to reinterpret what God calls us to. It's under attack by this relativism. Pastors, even in our own area, would call their people to question the relevancy of God's word, particularly the Old Testament and the laws laid forth there. Right? It's not, it's not uncommon. You can search videos on YouTube of pastors today who would question the relevancy of the Old Testament. And hopefully you're seeing as we go through the book of Exodus that it remains eternally relevant for us, right? Like even though we may not function in the exact same ways. The truths that we've seen through Exodus have huge application for us today, huge application for us as we live out our faith. And so um, we push back against that here at our church. We, we continue to see the relevancy of, of God's word, particularly the Old Testament. Well, let's pause for just a second before we get into just some more introductory stuff. And so today is, is different in the sense that we don't have a lot to work through verse by verse here, um, because I do think we have to kind of set the tone for How do we even understand and process the Ten Commandments in light of New Testament beliefs, right? Why would we see people moving away in a relativistic way from God's morals? Why why would we see that? Um, Why would we question the ongoing necessity of the communication of God's will? Well, it flows from a desire to act contrary to it, right? Like I was having a conversation with somebody this week who was talking about this specific thing, the idea of the church moving away from the need for the Old Testament and and why somebody would be motivated for that. Well, it's because of a desire to act contrary to it, right? Like, this is the only reason you would say we don't need it. Why? Because I don't want to live that way or I don't want to submit to that. I want to function differently. And it doesn't take long for you to explore some of these pastors who would say such a thing to find out that they are becoming more and more sympathetic to lifestyles that are not consistent with God's word, right? Like, you think of a day and age where the the church uh, oftentimes functions like a business and certainly has to uh, in a lot of ways, but when, when money oftentimes drives what's taking place within a church, uh, the more people you can get to come, the better, Right? And so how do, you, how do you open your doors to get more people to come? Well, there's, there's various ways to do that, right? You can do it the scriptural way where, where the book of Acts talks about how they were adding to their number daily because of their faithfulness to the gospel, their faithfulness to call people to live holy lives. There's other ways to do that too, where you can, you can tickle the ears of those who listen and hear, give them exactly what they want to hear and attract an audience that way too, right? And so... Um, you see people going the route of that second option more and more where people are, are coming to hear a message that, that doesn't conflict with their lifestyle, right? That, that allows them to function and operate the ways that their flesh wants to. You read through these Ten Commandments, it's like, which laws seemingly come under attack the most? What's the commands, I think, concerning the intimacy between humans, right? Like, you don't have a lot of pastors standing up changing our beliefs about stealing, right? Like there's not a lot of people lobbying and calling for, hey, I think we should be able to steal. Like, I think that should go away. Like, I think that doesn't apply anymore. Most of the attacks come from the fleshly desires for intimacy between human beings. Sometimes that's between husband and wife, male and female, and sometimes that's, that's outside of those confines as well. But typically, you don't have to dig too deep to find that pastors and churchgoers who are trying to move away from some of these things that we see right here in Exodus 20, it's out of motivation to live differently from it, right? Like it, it comes under the guise of like spiritual enlightenment that we've reached this place where, hey, we see that we don't need this anymore, but it's really rooted in the flesh. I want to live differently going forward, or I want to accept people who live differently going forward. 
The biggest desire to, to detach ourselves from the Old Testament comes from a desire to operate outside the guardrails that are given to us here. And while you don't see people championing for stealing and lying to, to go away, you see people making compromise after compromise more and more in those areas too. I mean, I remember a situation where Tyson and I were dealing with a parent where it was clear cut that dishonesty had happened between that student and, and Tyson as the teacher. And it's one thing to try to convince a student that you have cheated, you have been dishonest, you have lied about this. But when you're sitting with the parent and the parent is arguing that the child is not guilty of this either, even though they're admitting that they did what they did, they just don't want to quantify it and classify it as those things. It's evidence that we have shifted from God's moral standards, right? Like Because it, 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 it's something that we don't want to come underneath, particularly if it conflicts with how we want to live. We seek to minimize the application of these laws. What we need, though, is moral absolute because we are prone to have our preferences conflict with it inconsistently. Let me say that again. Why do we need God's law? Why do we need the moral absolute that comes from God speaking and giving his law? It's because if left to ourselves to develop our own standards, we're prone to have our preferences conflict inconsistently with others right? Like if there's no moral absolute, if there's no moral standard for right and wrong, and we're just left to ourselves, my right and wrong may not be good for you. It may be great for me, but it may not be good for you, right? And so it's not good for the people, for the people to function however they want to. And as God brings his people out of Egypt, they they escape and they're rescued and they're brought here on the brink of going into the the, um, promised land, God says, as a nation, we've got to understand how we're going to function and how it's going to be good for everybody involved if we do it this way. When you think about people that have a low regard for God's word and his law, it really comes from um, the low view that they have of God, right? It's why Exodus 19 is so important before you get to Exodus 20, because we get a high, high view of God in that passage, right? You've got the the mountain scene with the thunders and the lightnings and the earthquakes. And we saw last week, we can't dismiss that and say, that's the Old Testament God. New Testament God is Jesus, you know, hanging out with his buddies on the beach, eating fish after the resurrection. The Old Testament God's still in play, right? Because we saw in Revelation, the throne room of God, and we see similar pictures there of thunder and lightning and earthquakes, right? The holy God of the Old Testament is still the holy God of the New Testament, We need a high view of God to maintain a high view of his word. told you that it's spoken, it's written in stone, it's not fluid, it doesn't change because it reflects his holy character, which also doesn't change. This is such an important message for our kids. So I know we've got youth and and kids club kids that are in here today. Guys, as you keep growing and you keep developing and you start to move out of school and you start to move out from underneath your parents, I don't know what your world's going to look like. It's going to look different than it does today. And the moral absolutes are going to continue to deteriorate. You're going to come in contact with people who say, you don't have to listen to that stuff. It's so outdated. It's so old. It doesn't apply anymore. And I hope you'll remember sermons like this that tell us that we have to listen to God's word. It's still relevant for today. <clears throat> the application of God's law Uh, does progress from the Old Testament to the New Testament, not because God changes, but because man is changed by the coming of Jesus, right? So think about, we've already said, like, we don't don't do sacrifices anymore. So we'll we'll read as we continue to study the Old Testament uh, at times about the, the requirements for sacrifices. Well, that doesn't apply to us anymore. But as we saw last week, understanding our past helps us to understand the present better. It helps us to gain appreciation for Jesus, right? Because we see what was necessary in the Old Testament. We see why Jesus comes to fulfill it in the New Testament. Um, We talked a little bit years ago, and I'm not going to get into it today because we just don't have the time, and I don't want to go back to this because we've got sermons archived on it. But we talked a lot years ago about the difference between dispensational theology, covenant theology, and new covenant theology. I think there's six or seven sermons if you want to go back and listen to those. And those terms, dispensational, covenantal, new covenantal, 
carry the idea of how you see the framework of Scripture, particularly Israel and the church and how they fit into the grand scheme of things for God's plans. Well, when you think about the the covenant and new covenant theology, what's the difference between those two? Well, if we want to apply it to what we're looking at today, it's how they understand the application of the Old Testament law to the New Testament, okay? So get a little nerdy here maybe for you, not as as application-driven maybe as we normally would be, but lots of people want to divide the law up in the Old Testament as uh, moral law, that would be the commandments that we just read about. Ceremonial law, this would be the laws that, that give structure to the worship of Israel, right? The sacrifice system. And then the civil law, which would be how they were to manage their property, how they were managing their servants, um, kind of the, the governmental aspect, right? And you have to remember that Israel while we talk about ourselves being a holy nation, Israel was a physical nation in the Old Testament. So not only did they need moral guidance, they needed the, the, the structure and the laws that we have through our government about taxes, right? About how to function as a society. So you see a lot of laws heaped on the children of Israel because they're a nation that answers to God and eventually answers to a king, right? So covenant theology says that the ceremonial laws and the civic laws don't apply to us in the New Testament, but the moral laws do, right? Clean, simple. It's why we um, can eat shrimp and eat pork in the New Testament, but we, we, um, we don't lie and steal and cheat, right? Because we're, we're, we're following the moral laws of God, but we can, we can see some relaxation in the civil and the ceremonial laws, right? New Covenant theology says all of it, was fulfilled in Jesus, and then Jesus gives us the moral laws that we're to follow in the New Testament, which coincidentally just happened to be basically the Ten Commandments. So you can talk about, I'm covenantal theology, I'm new covenantal theology, and it really doesn't matter too much in the end, because in the end, you're both called to live the same way, right? I tend to, I tend to fall more in that new covenant theology mindset because then I don't have to go into great understanding and description of why I don't keep the civil and the ceremonial laws, because those things aren't replicated in the New Testament. We're going to see as we get into this, a lot of what the Ten Commandments teach are replicated in the New Testament, which means we certainly should be following them. We certainly, we certainly should be abiding by them. And in fact, what you see in the New Testament, sometimes it's referred to as the law of Christ, it actually elevates our understanding of how this stuff's supposed to be lived out, right? Like think about how uh, we, we know pretty familiar how Jesus talks about murder and how he talks about adultery, right? That if you, if you hate somebody, you're guilty of murder. The Pharisees thought like, well, when we've kept this law, we haven't killed anybody. And Jesus is like, no, nah, you're actually probably guilty of it because if you hate somebody, you're guilty of murder. And then it's like, well, hey, I've, I've stayed faithful to my wife. Well, if you've looked at somebody lustfully, then you've, you've committed adultery in your heart. So Jesus doesn't come on the scene and say, <clears throat> like a lot of pastors today, hey, let's, let's, let's uh, de-emphasize the moral character of God. Let's de-emphasize the moral laws of God, and let's live more free. He actually shows up and says, hey, we need to, we need to reevaluate and elevate what really was the, supposed to be the understanding, but you as Pharisees have made it more manageable for your own righteous purposes. Like we need to understand that, that the character of God actually elevates our living higher than how you've been living it out. Ephesians 5 helps us to see that even if you thought you weren't guilty of idolatry, that you probably are because you're probably guilty of coveting which just happens to be one of the other Ten Commandments. But in Ephesians 5, 5, it says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance the kingdom of Christ and God. Colossians says something real similar. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. <clears throat> put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So you see the, 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 the lifestyle of the Christian in the New Testament, really there's a greater emphasis on both the inward and the outward conformity, whereas the Pharisees had minimized it to outward conformity alone. First Timothy chapter 1 
helps us to see that, again, a lot of the, the Ten Commandments are replicated in the New Testament. Starting in verse 9, it says, listen to the, to the similarities. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Right? These, these sins that are listed off, very consistent with what we see in the Ten Commandments. Why? Because God's moral character doesn't change. Right? His, his character doesn't change, and so his expectation is that we as image bearers live according to his character. And so his character hasn't changed, so we would expect that as he continues to progressively reveal what we're supposed to be as his people— but that moral character wouldn't change, and it doesn't. Why, why is this important? What's at stake? <clears throat> I put in my notes, to know and worship the God of the Bible is to recognize and obey his absolute authoritative law that he spoke. What's at stake here? We, we can't worship, we can't know him if we don't obey him. Right? And there's, there's pastors that would tell you differently. There's pastors that would remove this, this call to certain lifestyles of obedience and say, you don't have to do that anymore. Um, and yet Jesus says, if you love me, you obey my commands. You don't change my commands, right? You obey my commands. So hopefully we'll see that as we work through the giving of God's law as he begins to speak it to us today. All right, <clears throat> that's the longest introduction I've ever done. And I have the least amount of voice today to do that with. So we're gonna, we're gonna start rolling. Number one, understand why the law is God's right Why does God have the right to give us his law? Why does he have the right to command us how to live? Number one, as Lord, which he identifies himself once again here in verse two, which is his, his proper name of Yahweh, which means he's the eternally existent one, right? He is the I am who I am. He has creator rights to command and hold accountable his creation to his will. He's our creator, and we've used this term before in our church. He has creator rights over us, meaning that because he creates, he's in charge. He gets to set the universe how he chooses to, right? Thankfully for us, he chooses to set it in good ways for his people, right? But as Lord, as Yahweh, the eternally existent one, he has creator rights to command and hold accountable his creation to his will. Number two, as Savior, the merciful and gracious one, he has demonstrated his love to compel his creation to his will. He commands us to follow his will. He holds us accountable to following his will, but he's also as savior, the merciful and gracious one. And through his love, he compels his creation to his will. He says, and God spoke all these things saying, I'm the Lord, your God. I'm Yahweh, the eternally existent one. I'm your creator, right? I have creator rights to command you, but I'm also the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I'm the one who brought you out of the house of slavery. What's he doing? He's defending his right to authoritatively give his law and demand adherence to it based on the rescue and the salvation that he's provided. Now, here's where it's real important because if we're not careful as we, as we focus on law, be real easy for us to fall into legalism. And we'll talk at the end about what legalism is. But I want you to note here, it's super important that you get this. He's not saying, as the God who rescued you out of Egypt, you will now do this because you owe me. Make sure you get that, right? Like we're not paying God back for rescuing us out of our sin. He's not saying this as a means of you owe me, but as a call that you can trust me. And that's, that's a big difference, right? He's not saying, hey guys, like I'm the God who rescued you, who set you free, who delivered you. Like now, now I own you and here's how you're gonna pay me back, right? Like he, 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 he's not calling us into this indebtedness to him. He's saying, no, think about it, guys. I've, I've delivered you, I've saved you. I've carried you on eagle's wings through the wilderness to get you here. Like everything that I've done has been for your good. Keep believing that as a good God, the commands that now come are never meant to be burdensome. Like they're meant to be good for you. That's what he's calling them to. 
it's also important for us to note, because sometimes we get confused, particularly growing up in church, sometimes it's easy to think that Old Testament saints were saved differently than New Testament saints, right? So don't, don't get confused in thinking that the children of Israel had to obey these commands to be saved, but as New Testament believers, we just get to believe in Jesus and be saved. Like, salvation is always functioning the same way. It's always functioning the same way. Old Testament saints didn't get saved by their good works, and somehow we can't in the New Testament. No, it's always been based on righteousness that comes through faith in God. How do we know that? Well, Paul says, think about the best Old Testament example, Abraham. Right? So in Romans, he says, Abraham was not saved by his good works. He was saved by faith, and it was counted to him as righteousness. All right? So God has the law to give to us, and he's right to give it to us because he's the eternally existent one, because he's our loving Savior. He gives us a good gift of things to follow, not to save us, though. And we'll, we'll look at that more here in a minute. Number two, understand why the law was given. Why was the law given to the children of Israel? Well, I think it's, it's, it's also important to remember that this isn't the first time they've heard right and wrong or come to an understanding of right and wrong, right? Like Paul talks in Romans that where's the, where's the law first given or where is it initially given? Well, it's written on the hearts of man, right? Like, so people all over the world that don't have the Bible in their own language have never heard of Christ. Like they still have an awareness and an understanding of who God is and, and his law because it's written on our hearts. There's a, there's a conscience, even though it's not uh, operating under the submission to the Holy Spirit and oftentimes it's influenced by our flesh, there's still an awareness of right and wrong, right? There's a law that's written on our hearts. So this isn't the first time that the children of Israel are given this. Um, It's also important to note that prior to the speaking of the law by God here, a lot of the Ten Commandments are already being practiced. There's already an awareness that they should be. Think through what we've already learned in our study in Genesis and into Exodus. Remember when um, Jacob who's married to both Rachel and Leah. Remember, she steals idols from her family and tries to bring them with her. And what does Jacob have to do? He takes them and buries them in the ground because he doesn't want his family falling into idolatry. There's an awareness that there should be no other gods before God. Um, Cain and Moses both are guilty of killing. That's viewed as negatively in society, right? Like it's not okay for Cain to kill his brother. It's not okay for Moses to kill the Egyptian, right? So there's an awareness that you shouldn't murder. Um, God's already kind of laid out the Sabbath understanding with how he's providing manna to the people, but he even refers to, hey, the Sabbath understanding comes, it's rooted from creation. So there's already an awareness of the the day that should be set aside for rest. Um, Let's see here. We know the story of Joseph and the adultery with Potiphar's wife. And what does he do? He flees from that because there's, there's an awareness, whether that's been communicated uh, verbally over traditional, you know, from tradition over years from God's people or, or it's written on his heart. Like he knows it's not okay to be with, with this man's wife. Um, Ham is pictured as what? Dishonoring his parents, particularly Noah after the flood. Uh, we know Sodom is held accountable for, it, for its, its sexual activity. So this isn't like people that are like hearing for the very first time certain things they shouldn't do, right? Like, like you don't have people sitting there going, man, I had no idea that we shouldn't be killing people, or I had no idea that we shouldn't be doing some of these things. It's like, no, like pretty familiar with some of this stuff, right? Um, instead, we're going to see that they come to a deeper understanding of why we feel these things or why we hold to these things as it flows from the character of God. But first, the law was given to help restrain man's depravity in a sinful society, right? The the law was given because man is sinful, and through giving law, both God's law here, but just the concept of law in general as well, it keeps man's sinful depravity in check. It forces people who don't want to do it to still do it some of the times. It, it forces people who aren't inwardly, inwardly interested in doing some of these things to still do them outwardly because there's a fear of the threat of penalty, right? So um, non-believers don't murder typically, 
right? Like they're not going to fall under the jurisdiction of what Jesus says. You shouldn't have hate in your heart. Um, but, but like unbelievers don't go out and just murder because they're unbelievers, right? Like there's a law that's written on their heart. There's also an awareness that there's a threat of penalty that comes with that too, that kind of keeps our, our sinful, hateful hearts in check that while we may hate somebody, we don't let it carry all the way out to fruition like Cain because the law helps keep our sinful depravity in check. Number two, the law was given to reveal the universal need for a perfect savior. It was given to reveal the universal need for a perfect savior, right? It's not given so we can get saved from it. Old Testament saints didn't get saved from following the law. It's given to help us see that everyone needs a savior. That's what we mean by universal. Everyone, nobody's outside of this need, right? What does Galatians say? Galatians chapter three, verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. The law points us to our need for Jesus. Helps us to see how truly sinful we are. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We also see this in Romans chapter 7, verse 8. It says for us, um, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. The law helps us to see that we have a need for a Savior, helps us to see that we can't fix it. James 2 talks about if you've broken one law, you're guilty of all. Romans 3.20 talks about how no man will be justified in the eyes of God by his good works. Nobody will be set free because they've been obedient to the law. And the more clearly we see God's law uh, and what it requires, the more obvious it becomes that we can't keep its commands, which is why we need the gospel. We can't be saved by our own keeping of the law. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, which is a passage that um, a lot of our kids here are memorizing that are at Trinity right now, talks about how there's, <clears throat> there's no way that we can be saved by our good works, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And I challenged our kids this week. I said, look, there'll come a day when uh, somebody of another religion will try to convince you to leave Christianity to follow this system of thinking. And I told him, I said, here's your cheat code. All other religions are basically the same. They teach that you work your way to favor with God. The lists are different, but Christianity is set apart and different because it calls us to faith, calls us away from our works because our works will never be sufficient. The law was given to reveal the universal need for a perfect Savior. But then lastly, number three, the law was given to provide absolute moral truth, which comes from God's character for daily living. Israel and all mankind was in need of a moral consensus, moral absolutes from the one who creates all things. Israel is going to be stepping into moral relativism in Canaan, and they'll need a guiding lamp to their feet, a light to their path to help them know what's right and wrong. And think about how the commands give us an understanding of who God is and who we are, right? Commandment number one, the idea of no other gods, it tells us about God's jealousy, a rightful good jealousy for his worship. Number two, the supremacy of God, that he's far better than anything this world offers. 
So we don't worship him through images that are created. Romans, Romans 1 talks about this, right? That God is spirit. And so we don't try to formulate him in creation. He's above creation. He's supreme to creation. 3 and 4 talk about his majesty, right? That we don't misuse his name, that we, we use a day set aside to worship him because we need the rest. We need that submission to him. We see the authority piece in chapter or in commandment number five that we're to submit to those that are over us. <clears throat> commandment number six that that the image bearing nature of human beings would prohibit us from taking and hurting and harming others who bear His image as well. Number seven that we're to be pure in our relationships with one another. Number eight that we're to see Him as the provider. We don't take from others. Number nine that we're committed to truth that we don't spread lies. Number 10, that we're content in what he gives us. Why is, why is covetousness idolatry? Because when we covet, we say we're not content with what God's given us. We want a different God. We want a God who gives to us differently. Right? We've talked a lot over the contentment piece in the Old Testament with the book of Psalms where the lot lines that God gives to us, right? the routes that God puts us on, if we covet other people's routes, if we covet other people's lot lines, we're basically saying we want a different God. And he calls us to contentment in him. The commands are meant to give us practical ways for loving both God and neighbor, right? Jesus summarizes what it means to obey the commands of God, that we put God first, we love God first with our whole hearts, and then we love our neighbor as ourselves. We won't take time to to look at these passages, <clears throat> but Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 39. If you want to jot some of these down, John chapter 14, verse 21. Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. And 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. All of these passages talk about the heart of what it looks like to be obedient to the commands of God. That we're, 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 we're loving God, we're loving our neighbor, we're, we're putting love first for those, uh, for those and, and um, we're expressing that love through obedience to his commands. Lastly, number three, we understand why the law remains important. God has the right to give his law. Why was it given? Not to save us, not to save Israel. It was meant to keep sin in check, right? It was meant to show the need for a savior, Jesus comes in the future. We should be ready for that in light of what we see, our inability to keep the law. But it is also given to give us uh, a guide for rightful living because we're called to still be obedient to him after salvation. Just like Israel's called to be obedient after being saved from Egypt, we too are called to be obedient after being saved from our sin. Why does it remain important? Number one, the moral aspects of God's law remain applicable for saving purposes. What do I mean by that? We're not saved by his moral law, by keeping it. No, our failure to keep it has saving purposes because it points us to Jesus. It points us to the gospel, right? Like, like we use God's moral law when evangelizing and sharing the gospel with others by showing others their inability to keep the law. Because we encounter, most people we encounter believe that they're good, and that their goodness will reign supreme on judgment day. The moral law of God remains important and relevant. We don't unhitch ourselves from it. We don't, we don't discard it. We need it. We need God's moral law to help show others their need for Christ. And number two, the moral, law, the moral aspects of God's law remain applicable for sanctifying purposes. It's, it's, the, it's the guidance for how we're supposed to live. So what's changed then? Right? We talked last week about how things have changed in the New Testament. We can approach a holy God because the mediator's changed. What's changed in light of how we are to understand the law? Well, we're now free to see that the law has been kept for us, removing a need for sacrifice and giving us added confidence to carry out his commands in faith. That's what's changed. In the Old Testament, you, you, you had this expectation of obedience and you didn't have somebody who had been obedient for you yet. Instead, you had to go to your flock and try to find a perfect substitute that could function in your place for a period of time until you needed another substitute, and another substitute, and another substitute. What's changed? We have the ultimate substitute, right? Like, we don't, we don't have to offer sacrifices anymore, which now sets us free 
as we seek to live obediently to him, that every time we fail, it's not like, I got to go find a sacrifice. I got to go find a substitute. No, we have a substitute and we can rejoice in that, which frees us in our obedience to keep, to keep pursuing holiness with him because of the work of Christ. So from an application standpoint, as we get ready to jump into the Ten Commandments in the coming weeks and better understanding the, the law of God here for the children of Israel, I want you to think in terms of how you relate to the law of God. I think there's three ways that we can, we can look at this, three ways that we potentially relate to the law of God. <clears throat> Number one would be lawlessness. You have to ask yourself this question. Do you want to be set free from the responsibility to obey God? There's a lot of people who do, and it shapes the way they read the Bible. It shapes the way they read the Bible. It allows them to see outs along the way where we no longer have to do this anymore, or this was a cultural thing. It doesn't apply to us anymore. It comes from a desire for lawlessness to be set free from responsibility to obey God and instead to be free to do whatever you want to do. Number two is legalism. You feel bound to obey God, so you lower God's standard to make it manageable with self-made regulations. Legalism is the idea that you're trying to, to earn favor with God, but you're smart enough to look at the Word and say, I can't do all of these things, so let me make a manageable list that I can keep. It's what the Pharisees had done. They had made a manageable list that they were keeping, and they called everybody else to try to keep it. It was things that they didn't struggle with or things that they felt like they did pretty good. Right? It wasn't, it wasn't as deep as Jesus talks about them keeping those things, but they had made it manageable, and that's what legalism is. It, it takes God's law, lowers the overall standard, creates man-made regulations that says, these are things I can do, and because I've done these things, I'm holy and good. Some of us fit into that category. We're still trying to earn God's favor through our good works, and we read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and we know we can't, and yet practically, functionally, we still live our lives this way. And number three is love. That we understand God's commands are not burdensome and instead are an expression for how to love and trust him. First John talks about the, the commandments of God are not burdensome for those who really understand their purpose. Who understand that it's the God of Exodus chapter 20 verse 2 who says, I saved you out of Egypt. I rescued you in the wilderness. I'm not calling you to obey me because you owe me. I'm calling you to obey me and trust me because you know I'm a good God. And I would never call you to things that aren't good. The enemy lies just like he did to Adam and Eve. Kids, the enemy lies just like he lied to Adam and Eve. And he says, God's laws are meant to hold you back. They're meant to make you miserable. They're meant to keep you from good things. And, th- and that's really, I mean, you could boil down, like Jesus says, how do you obey the law? You, you, uh, you, you love God and you love others. Like that, like, like that's his, his, his understanding of the law in summary format. I think you could summarize every day of our life down to one of two choices. Do we believe God's good or not? Because if we believe he's good, then we wake up every day and we say, what does God want me to do today? If we believe he's not good, which is the, the lie of Satan, then we wake up every day saying, how do I get out from underneath God? It's, it's really what every day is about. Do we want to put ourselves under God or take ourselves out from underneath him? And God says, hey, I've shown myself to be so good to you. Put yourself underneath me. Put yourself underneath me. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you and we praise you that you are a good God. And Lord, I pray that as we study your commands, we would not see them as restrictive. We would not see them as burdensome. Instead, Lord, help us to see the purpose of them. Lord, that through your commands, you you help us to see our inefficiency to be obedient to you, that we could never keep your holy character because of our sinful nature. Lord, help us to see that your laws and your commands point us to the need for Jesus. It reduces our ability to boast about our own good living. 
But Lord, help us to see that your commands are also the way to live life. They're the best way to live life. You as the creator of life have given us the instruction manual for how to live life well. God, help us to to pursue you in our own sanctification where we seek to live out in faith your calling to love you and to love others well. Lord, help us to see over the coming weeks how these commands fit into that mindset. Lord, help us to be rescued from any mindset that still lingers in our own hearts that, that we need to obey you because we owe you or because we're trying to earn favor with you. Lord, help us to see that the difference in the New Testament is that Jesus has achieved what was promised in the Old Testament. And so while the Old Testament saints look to Jesus, we look back to Jesus. So God, protect us from from being bound into a legalistic mindset that tries to make your laws and commands manageable so that we can feel good at the end of the day that we've earned your favor. Lord, help us to see that Jesus has kept the righteous requirements of the law for us. Lord, instead, I pray that you would infuse in us a desire to love you well by being obedient to you. That we would love our neighbors well by being obedient to you. That we would see our actions have consequences, not just for ourselves, but for those around us. God, help us to live out our faith this week in obedience to you. Not with a desire to come out from underneath you, but desire to put ourselves underneath you. Because you're good. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.